Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by science communicator and environmental educator Matthew McKenzie. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks a lot. Now, you're a school teacher, a school principal, but you don't work at a school. That's right. Yeah, How does so that work? <laughs> I have worked at a school. I mm-hmm. used to be a primary school teacher once upon a time, and, uh, and I really enjoyed taking kids outside, and I always had a personal interest in, in birds and bugs and lizards and being outdoors, so I was always the environmental education contact in the in the several schools that I worked in and uh, then I heard, then I actually transferred to Dubbo to try to get a job at the zoo as an educator because I thought that would be my dream job with my interest in in nature. Uh, and there was no job going at the zoo at the time but I heard of the environmental education centres and uh, was lucky enough to score my first job at the centre just out of Dubbo called Wombangalang and I was a teacher at Wombangalang and I was there for 12 years and then after that I, I applied for the teaching principals job at Thalgara which is up near Armadale and was fortunate enough to get that one. So we, we still teach and uh, we still are uh, places that are run by the Department of Education. Um, we just don't teach the same kids every day. All right, so you're at Thalgara Environmental Education Centre, but there's a whole network of these environmental education centres. Like you said, they're a state government thing, so I guess technically they're public schools? Yeah, that's right. They're a public school, so we come under the lots of the same rules as public schools. Uh, we, we're, that's, how, that's how our wages are paid, and uh, we follow the, the rules and regulations of, of public schools. So there are 23 across New South Wales, uh, but we also are part of a a network that we call the Environmental and Zoo Education Centre Network. And uh, so the Environmental Education Centre's 23 of, and then there's the two zoos, so two public zoos, so one at Dubbo, Taronga at Dubbo and Taronga in Sydney. And their education centres are part of our network as well. And is this nationwide as well? It's, uh, It's... does goes well in some states, but more than others. I think Victoria once had it going well, and have now only got one. No, that's South Australia. I've got one in South Australia. Victoria don't have any state-run environmental education centres. Queensland have a slightly different model, but very similar. In theirs is called uh, instead of environmental and zoo, theirs is environmental and outdoor education centres. So, and there's quite a quite a network in. Queensland as well, but I'm not sure about the other states, really. So your schools, but like you said, you don't have your own student centre enrol in no, these schools, and it's not like, like a performing arts school or a, a <laughs> STEM school or something. No, that's right. You're no, a support we, base for other schools. Yeah, that's right. So we act as uh, we act as uh, places that other schools visit. For a day, mostly for a day in some of, the, but some of the centres like Thalgara do, do have uh, dormitory style accommodation. So if some people, 
that means that we can have people for longer programs or it means that people can come from a further away and stay a few days. And so half, half of the centres in New South Wales are, are dormitory style or residential style accommodation as well. So half and the other half don't and they just do day visits. All right, so that's mostly how it works. A school would book into a, an excursion out to an environmental education centre or a overnight camp or something like that. Yeah, so mostly, I mean, we are we we are deliverers of curriculum as well. So uh, we they ring up and say we want to come out, and we say why, and they say, well, we we're a year three class and we we're studying living things or we're studying life cycles or. Or oh, we're year 11 class and we're studying ecosystems at the moment and we want to come out for that. And so uh, so a lot, most of the work that we do at Thalgara is science-based and I guess that's sort of where I've taken it in my time at Thalgara. Uh, other centres do a lot of geography. But, um, and so but, but being outdoors in, in environments, whether they're natural or built environments, is... Uh, is what we do best. So why do schools come to these centres? Why don't they just do it in their own classrooms with their own resources? Well, well, the, it's a good question. Uh, they can't do it in their own classrooms because forests don't exist in classrooms, I guess. <laughs> uh, and beaches don't exist in classrooms. So, uh, so a lot of the centres have very unique natural environments surrounding them or have access to very unique natural environments. So at Thalgara we have um, endangered ecolog ecological community of grassy box woodlands. Uh, we also have a river, not at the moment unfortunately, it's, it's run dry, <laughs> but normally there's a river there. And, but other places have rocky shores and beach and dune systems and rainforests and uh, so, so they come out because we have set ourselves up as experts in edu in educating students in those particular environments. Yeah, I imagine that, yes, getting the environmental education is great. But, like you said, just having the opportunity to get that outdoors experience, is, is it becoming harder for students to get that experience? Uh, that, yeah, it, it went through a phase, I feel like, uh, a few years ago where where there wasn't as many people willing to t go on camps and things um, there was uh, you know risk when risk assessments first came in but there seems to be a growing need now I know that we've become a lot busier in the last three years uh, I think that the reason we've come become busier in my opinion anyway is because there's been changes in in state curriculum so syllabuses have changed and there's a lot more push now for students to be learning firsthand and uh, learning learning about skills of learning really so going out and and completing transects to decide on what community of um, you know forest that you're in that kind of thing is now the way they do it rather than look that up in a book I mentioned, though, that there's a lot more benefits to just learning what's in the curriculum by having this sort of hands-on outdoor education, right? I, I, I certainly think so. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly think so. And I was uh, only talking to a principal the other day and asked them what 
they thought of what we do and uh, did they did they see there's opportunities that um, for for us to do different things with with their school with their school and their teachers and their students and uh, they said that every time their class and we see most of the classes from that school most when they come back both the teachers and the students have always had a you know really great day out with us so if you take kids out of school it's probably a great day no matter what you do but uh, I'd like to think that it's a great day because there's some been some real real engagement in learning and uh, and with that natural world in, on our part anyway and you said it's mostly science but it can also be other subject areas what type of activities do you what do you run out of Thalgara? Yeah, so besides science, uh, we do geography and geography. The syllabus and geography has also had an update recently, where which has enabled us to get into schools from that from that um, perspective. So the schools book us for geography things and where we look at um, maps or and how to how to manage natural environments. So we have a, uh, one of our studies is all about wetlands and, and the students, after studying a wetland for the day, do go back to school, do a bit further study and then look at the data that they've collected on the day and then, ask, and then answer the question of how well that wetland is being managed for the blue-billed duck and they then create a video to communicate their findings and what their recommendations might be. So that's a geography study that we do. That's one of the geography studies that we do. But we also run, uh, we use the natural environment around Thalgara as places for, profession, uh, for personal development, um, team building type activities. And we also run art activities as part of our camps but we also do a, a standalone visual arts camp each year so and that's for stage three interested stage three students from throughout the new england so we've got a few things covered um we don't do a lot of maths and we don't do a lot of reading and writing i guess mm. but it's not all digging holes and getting your hands dirty you can do technology exercises and like you said they're out there making videos and engaging with iPads and yeah yeah it's a full spectrum type of experience yeah i say they're not re- they're not doing any reading but of course uh <laughs> they you're not uh, teaching them how to read <laughs> presumably they meant. know how to do that when they get there yeah <laughs> yeah that's what i meant uh so yeah a lot of the time I, an activity at Thalgara will dip in and out of all the key learning areas of of curriculum so uh and and we're we've been looking at it for the last few years anyway maybe five now of of mobile technologies utilizing mobile technologies in in understanding natural environments so whether that's um apps to work out the ground cover in a forest uh or we use the we have a day which is all about visual uh visual literacy and taking pho- digital photographs in the forest and uh, doing doing some literacy activities that link the writing they did in the forest with the photos they took in the forest. Um, yeah, it's been... And kids link with the technology well, but we only use the technology when it really does 
accentuate the program rather than use it for novelty's sake. Mm. As a teacher at one of these environmental education centers, it sounds like you might have the best of both worlds of being a teacher because you get all the fun of teaching and interacting with students, but none of the long-term commitment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, I can't argue with anybody who says that you've got the best job in the world. I I, I find, I I say, yep, in my opinion, I do. And uh, yeah, there's things that I miss from teaching in a normal school. I I miss uh, doing a lot of teaching kids to read and seeing that progression of from from the start of the year to the end of the year and I love taking teams away for sport but uh, I don't miss writing reports <laughs> um, <laughs> miss having to become part of their lives for a year or more time <laughs> so I yeah you're right I it's a great job and and I I'm not likely to give it up anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> so I was introduced to these centers when you invited me to a conference uh, earlier this year where a bunch of environmental and zoo education centers got together. And I got to say, I was really blown away by all the teachers that I met there and just their sheer joy and passion and the fact that all of them said pretty much what you just said and that they have the best job in the world and wouldn't (laughs) give it up for anything, which... I don't know, maybe I'm just a bitter scientist, but I have never experienced that, <laughs> that sort of uh, attitude before. But uh, yeah, I feel like even you talk to lots of school teachers and their attitude can sometimes just be, uh, kids, <laughs> can't live with them, can't live without them, you know, that sort of attitude. Whereas you guys seem unanimously, you know, yeah, jumping I guess. out of your pants excited about what you do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, like you say, I mean, we are passionate about what we do and people don't, don't get shoved into environmental education centres because there was a hole there. They, they try hard and they have to sit an interview process and, and they really want the job because it's where their passion lies. Mm. Uh, if you ask some primary school teachers or some high, any, any teacher, if they'd like to work at Thalgara, there'll be probably, you know, plenty of them would say, no, that's not. That's not my piece of cake, mm. you know? but uh, for those people who it is, we get to do what we love and mm. yeah, there's something to be said for that. How does one go about becoming a teacher in these centres? So, so they have to be a, a permanent member of the Department of Education, a permanent teacher in the yep. Department of Education and then wait for somebody to die. <laughs> 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 no, not quite. <laughs> It's not quite that bad, but uh, the, there isn't a lot of turnover mm. of teachers in the centres. So, it's most of the, no, probably 50-50, there are two teachers in half the centres and then there's one teacher in half the centres. But there's lots and lots of uh, the centres employ casual teachers as well. Just, just It seems this rise in popularity of using your local environmental education center is a thing across the state not just Thalgara so um, I know that there's a few centers down in Sydney that have got five and six different casuals there on a daily basis as well teaching Mm. groups in different in different patches around the Sydney basin and in yeah so um, having a passion for environmental education uh, environmental environmental issues and environmental education 
is a is a good start, but have being obviously have to have some kind of teacher qualification. Um, I know that there are people who are in our system who were once PE teachers, but that's probably uncommon. And usually mm. they're primary school teachers, or science teachers, or geography teachers. All right. Yeah. Well, you might not have your own students that you mentor for long periods. You do have that benefit of, I guess, getting to teach every student in tone. It kind of turns you into a bit of a local celebrity, <laughs> right? <laughs> It, it certainly does in a country town. <laughs> uh, in in Armadale, uh, there's there's lots of lots of people that I see at least once a year, every year, and uh, they we have a positive experience together mm. out in out in the forest or down by the river, or yeah, so um, yeah, and I shop at the local supermarket, <laughs> and so do they. Um, and so, I guess you're in that position where they all know who you are. Yes. But I'm guessing you're not going to remember all their names. No, you're right. That I gave up <laughs> trying to do that a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we see about 6,000 students uh, a year at Thalgara. So yeah. not all of them are from within um, a stone's throw of Thalgara. So we get a few from about two to three hours away as well to come for camps. But a lot of those 6,000 kids are local kids. And, um, yep, I, I see them a lot. And mm. generally we're... I, I recognise faces more than I know names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where did your own interest in environment come from, or has it always been there? Uh, it probably came from my older brother, actually. I, I He's six years older than me, and uh, I spent a lot of my childhood sort of following him on his little uh, escapades uh, through in into the bush and uh back then he would he would love he would love nothing more than you know turning over rocks and sticks and logs and try looking for reptiles mostly but uh you know in the process of looking for reptiles you see lots of other great interesting mm. things out in the bush um we've always lived in i've always lived in uh, western new south wales and except for those four years i went to uni so uh it, i just I've always had that sort of affinity from an early age that was instilled in me through my brother's journeys through the bush. Um, so that's mostly where it came from, I think. Uh, he, we also used to keep, my family used to you know, keep lots of birds in aviaries and things. So I sort of grew up always with birds around me and my mum was a bit of a soft touch for any stray and wandering dog and mm. cat and so we're always ha well, I've always been surrounded by animals and um, other life forms so it's it's yeah it is sort of just been part of my world forever yeah do you feel like teaching out at a place like Thalgara would be a very different experience to teaching at an environmental education center that's closer to a city where I guess part of their job would be actually introducing children to natural landscapes whereas here you'd have lots of kids that grew up on properties yeah i it's certainly yeah that would certainly be the case i mean there's there's a center one of our centers in new south wales is is right in the middle of sydney in in the rocks there mm. so um uh there's no big forest although there is a big patch of water quite close by <laughs> um but they do a lot of uh urban geography and yeah, things yeah. like that so uh but I, I think that everybody. I'm, I'm actually surprised with 
in a country in a country town, a centre that's just out of town in a country town, that the amount of kids, particularly in primary school, who don't have have regular visits to wild places. Mm. Um, just lately, I've started asking people when we sit around a campfire on a camp, who is this the first time you've ever sat around a campfire? And and probably fifty percent of the time, fifty percent say yes, it is their first time. Mm. So. Yeah, so there's certain there's a certain degree of, um, you know, pride that comes with introducing people to wild places and uh, wild experiences yeah. such as, such as that. You know, it kind of aligns with an idea I've been mulling over in my head that I don't know how to quite articulate it, or if it's even valid. But I always get an impression that sometimes people in metropolitan areas can be a little bit more environmentally aware. Then people in regional areas, maybe because it's they don't see a lot of it, so it's a bit more special yeah. to take care of. Where if you're regional, maybe nature and wildlife is taken for granted a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a feasible argument, I reckon. So good. <laughs> <laughs> I might just be making that up. But <laughs> yeah, now and yeah, if you're if you're into, uh, I guess it just depends what your family's into, and if they're if they're busy and. Uh, and you spend a lot of time at home or, you know, in front of the telly and stuff, then that's that's your life, that's what you know. And mm. and sometimes it's good for us all to, you know, get out of the bubbles that we know. So, mm. But when you're out in the environment and thinking about what you care about, are you a plant guy, are you an animal guy, geology, what's your... Yeah, I'm certainly not a geology no. guy. <laughs> I'd Me like to that's <laughs> fine. I've admitted that on this podcast before. I, I haven't... <laughs> quite ever wrapped my head around it (laughs) (laughs) i i was always the the an animal person which is Mm. why i thought a job in a zoo would be right up my alley uh but since i started with the job i i've become an environment person and Mm. uh i am probably still find animals my go-to uh which uh, area that i certainly feel comfortable with uh but i've certainly got a lot more knowledge and respect for the plant world but i just and i guess that's why i got into the job originally because i loved showing kids a lizard or Mm. you know introducing them to creepy crawlies like um beetles and uh, mealworms and things but but lately and when i say lately i mean probably the last 10 years i i think that just being in a wild place mm-hmm. does wonderful things for people and that's that's what I see and I haven't got I haven't done a PhD on that but I, I see I have lots of anecdotal stories of people just really uh, enjoying that and it's being so good for their own development and their own um, mindset and their own calm and their own way well-being so that's probably what it's about for me now so being in nature and the positive impact on well-being yeah i mean we're starting to see evidence come out not just from people that work with the environment but you know mental health researchers and urban planners and things that show that access to even things just like the color green (laughs) can have real fundamental effects on people's well-being yeah yeah and and I and that's fantastic that those studies have been done and and they've come out to show that that 
I think that environmental education center people, mm. we see that, you know, almost every day. Yeah. Mm. It's a shame though that you kind of need the numbers <laughs> behind it to take to yeah, <laughs> people yeah. with power to, to change <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah, it helps. <laughs> yeah. Now you and I are involved in a project uh, that's being carried out in partnership with lots of these environmental education centers called the Tiny Gardeners Project. Yeah, we are. And that's, can you that's tell me about the Tiny Gardeners Project? Yeah, well, I can tell you a little bit about it, but uh, you're probably the expert. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you are anyway. <laughs> so, Sorry, I, w- I won't correct you. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so the Tiny Gardeners Project is, is a citizen science project that has uh, been put together by you to... To answer, <laughs> to answer uh, que- big questions that you have about the the role that ants play in distributing tree seeds, mm. and uh, and why and I've been involved with this is probably my my third real um, dip into citizen science with students, and um, and I think that it's to me it's about. Um, teaching the ways of science and I th- I th- so I'm really keen for kids to be involved with that um, sometimes as school teachers um, I think we sometimes sort of make things up so that they're kid friendly mm. um, without being necessarily real world applicable perhaps sometimes um, but certainly with a citizen science project we know that the protocols and the procedures have been put together by a practicing scientist to answer the particular questions that they have and and it's a fantastic feeling for for me to introduce students to that but it's a fantastic student a fantastic feeling for the students to know that that bit of work that they're doing those the collecting those numbers each day about how many seeds have taken out of the petri dishes that they'll send that off to a real scientist to answer real questions mm. and so to me uh i'm sort of playing the role of putting together the likes of scientists like yourself, um, real scientists with real questions about the natural world um, with, with the students who have come to me and said, we want to learn about the natural world. So it, to me, it's a hand-in-glove fit. Yeah. I mean, as you said, the Tiny Gardeners Project is the research project that I've been developing and obviously the data and the science side of it I'm very interested in and um, trying to answer big questions with it but when it comes to citizen science that's the science is almost secondary and then the citizen comes first and you've been spearheading the part of this project which is reaching out to schools and getting schools involved and making it accessible for them so for a school that's getting involved in this project what is it what does it look like to them what's involved yeah so uh i've I've got a few local schools we we created a video uh about the process with uh, with yourself involved and uh, and a local school and and we had that produced into a video and it's been and and lots of people have seen that and lots of people have contacted me about that to say we we want to get on with this too um, lots of the and I think there's there's reasons for that one because it looks great and it's then you know, it's got that real world application that we spoke about but also this ticks lots of the boxes that we need to tick as school teachers these days uh, mm. there's a whole section that runs from kindergarten to all the way to year 12 which is all about uh, outcomes that we have to tick that say we've taught about working scientifically and this little project 
it ticks all that boxes. It, it talks about planning and investigations. It's about mm. conducting an investigation. It's collecting the the data. It's manipulating the data. It's you know what does this what what is the question and does this data sh- answer it for us? So um, it certainly ticks lots of boxes there. But um, I th- I think that teachers are just looking for that genuine genuine fun hands-on interesting science activity and if they see one then they grab it Hmm. i should clarify with the tiny gardeners project that it's a research project where we're looking at how ants plant tree seeds essentially so there are lots of uh, australian native trees that have seeds that ants will pick up and carry underground and so the the little tiny gardeners that I'm looking at are the ants, not the students in yes. the classroom. <laughs> Let's make that very clear. <laughs> and you know, this is a thing that happens all across the world, really, and I want to know where ants are doing this. Are they doing it in the rainforest? Are they doing it in the deserts? Are they doing it in cities? Are they doing it in farmland? It's a big question that I need lots of help with. But the way it's designed is that each school gets a little kit where they can run their own experiment in the classroom looking at, I guess, which types of tree seeds are ants' favourites. So within the classroom, you can ask your own question about what ants are doing. You upload the data, and I get all of the data, and then I look at a much, much larger scale what ants are doing. But you've actually hands-on run the Tiny Gardeners Project way more than I have (laughs) (laughs) now. Is this stuff new to kids? Are kids aware that ants doing these things are teachers aware that ants are doing these things i don't think so i think i think it is new i I think it's new and i i introduced it the other day um i mean i'm i'm quite new to it i (laughs) like to think that i knew a bit about this sort of stuff but uh to me this is a quite a fairly new concept to me as well so um through the work with tony gardeners i've come up to speed with with things and i've likened it to a process in nature that kids are much more uh, able to understand or have been introduced to before, and that's about the relationship between uh, bees and flowers. You know mm. that there's a there's a mutualistic sort of going ons there, and uh, and so and it's just like like that with the the tree seeds that that we use during the tiny gardeners project. That there is benefit for the seeds that benefit for the trees and the seeds but there's also benefit for the ants in that um there's no benefit however if the ants eat the seed Mm. then the tree the plant doesn't doesn't gain anything from that but the fact that the tree seed has that elizome that little food reward on it that's the that's the benefit for the uh for the animal Mm. and um and so it's just one of those very many relationships that happen in forests around Australia that we don't know about, I guess, or don't know enough about. Yeah, I guess the pollination example is good. I I also liken it to just seed dispersal by animals that eat fruit. You know, fruit has seeds in it and it has big bright colours that attracts animals to eat it and they eat them seeds and poop them out somewhere else. Yep. But then maybe I'm assuming that's common knowledge as well. Is that I don't new think to kids or do kids see fruit as things you eat? The kids see fruit as things that are put there for us. Yeah. Yeah. They don't see that the benefit of 
they don't see benefits of fruit for plants generally. Mm. It, when I'm, I, I generally, you know, seventy five percent of my work would be with primary schools, and I, we talk about seed dispersal in some in some of our programs and why why plants have fruit. The gem, the most common answer is for us to eat. Mm. Yeah, as opposed to seeing that it's a thing that the plants have evolved to help them disperse yes. and to plant the next generation of seeds. Yeah. yeah. Do you talk much about the idea of ecosystem services in general? No, probably not that term. Mm. Um, I do talk, you know, even with small children, we do small children, I mean, sort of stage one, year one and year two kids. Um, we look at, we have a program that's called investigating invertebrates. And so we look at, some of the some of the roles that invertebrates play because you know lots of people uh including some of those year one and two children uh don't particularly like you know spiders and ants and things like that but uh we look at in a bit of a bushwalk and we we see ants nests and we see rotting logs and mm. so we look at uh, some of those those great ecosystem services without using that term for five and six year olds. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We do look at that in terms of uh, pollination and, um, um, you know, breaking the decomposition of the forests Mm. and uh, things like that. Yeah. And it's starting to occur to me now that this tiny gardeners project might be very topical because the idea is that plants have evolved this strategy where ants take their seeds underground as an adaptation to survive bushfires. Mm. And that's becoming pretty topical at the <laughs> moment, do you think? That's for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah and uh, and uh, so how how quickly they can adapt to the ones that haven't already got those adaptations <laughs> uh, will be the question. <laughs> given that New South Wales is on fire. Yeah, we, you can't see where we're recording it, but today is the smokiest day I've seen in a very very long time. Yeah, I think there's a twenty hectare fire, twenty thousand hectare fire. Um, yeah, about about seventy k's from us, and the wind is just right today for mm-hmm. to all that bushfire smoke to come over Armadale. So yeah, we're certainly certainly feeling the brunt of it today. How are you guys going out at Thalgara here in a very dry, woody place out there? That's right, and that's that's where it's coming from. So thankfully, we're still about forty k's away, and I did contact the. Rural Fire Service guys this afternoon, and they say that it's under control at this stage. So mm-hmm. we we should be right, but we have been closed, non non operational for a few days in the last couple of weeks okay. because of the fire danger. So, yeah. yeah, so it's nice to have woods around unless there's a fire around. <laughs> yeah, it's trouble. <laughs> now, obviously, we're putting together a citizen science project. Uh, I'm very interested in. The data quality and the questions I can ask with it. But I feel like there are lots of citizen science projects out there that focus too much on that and forget about the experience for the people collecting the data. For schools involved in the Tiny Gardeners Project, what's in it for them? I don't I don't want the schools to be data collection monkeys. <laughs> you know, I would like to ha- give them a valuable experience yeah, as well. well it's certainly been great in Armada, for the Armadale schools that we've worked with when 
when they meet you, um, when they meet you, and they and and I think that that is a really rich experience for those guys who perhaps you know hadn't thought about science as a career even when they're in year five or year six, but uh, you know being introduced to you and seeing that you're a walking, talking, normal human being. <laughs> Thanks, um, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> It just narrows that gap between where they are and where they could be as a scientist. From mm. that, you know, where they're not just the scientists in this sort of thing that they've seen in the movies. Um, they've they've met a real one, and a real one wants their help. And so I, I think there's there's great benefits and unmeasurable, of course, immeasurable benefits because we don't know which one of those guys that you've touched. You know, in the last in the last few weeks of going around talking to schools about this will become scientists, um, but I think their interest in science has certainly certainly uh, been developed by the program and, and your involvement in, in the program particularly. Um, and if if we're making, if you know, those are the guys of the, are the, the future and they've got to make decisions and they've got to vote on what politicians and, mm. and policies and uh, if they've got an interest in science and can understand things from a scientific point of view and can understand how science how science comes up with the answers they come up with then i think that we're you know that we're bettering the future you know for for all of us mm. um so i and as i mentioned before there certainly there's certainly uh benefits that the teachers can tick off for from their syllabus outcomes alone um but i think that that uh, we've seen, and I, and for the ones that I've gone to and done myself, I've I've certainly seen um, the lights come on in in terms of engagement of learning, and mm. part of that is that authentic audience of the scientist that wants this data that I'm collecting, and part of it is we're outside and we're learning and we're um, and and part of it's that it's that it's hands on and no one knows the answer to this stuff and and I'm helping discover that rather than being lectured to about stuff that people already know. So um, yeah, I think that's there's great benefit for the students and schools and teachers involved. I mean, when we talk when we made that video, the the teacher talked about how how excited the kids were to to meet a scientist and to be able to help that scientist. Yeah. Yeah, it has been great getting out to Thargara and out to Armadale schools. Obviously, as the Tiny Gardeners project expands, I won't be doing <laughs> school visits to every school participating. I'd love to, but logistically, it's a bit challenging. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> but we'll be putting up you know, videos yeah. and hopefully get in contact that way through blog posts and email and yep. all that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, and I guess my main message that I want to get out there, you know, in terms of making science fun and accessible to people, is that I have this idea that science is just counting. And it's really just that simple. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's got this very uh, nice polished sheen with, that there's lasers and there's computers and there's all this stuff and that you have to be smart and savvy and technical. But when you break it down... Every science experiment is just counting. And if you can count, you can be a scientist. And <laughs> I think this project is great on that point because the methods simply involve putting out 20 tree seeds and then coming back 
you know, five days in a row and counting how many are left. Yep. So if you can count to 20, you can be a scientist and not just pretend scientist, like lit- literal scientist collecting data. And the more I think about that message that it's just counting, it, it seems to apply everywhere. You know, okay. Even if you're an astrophysicist pointing lasers out into space, really what you're doing is just counting how often those lasers bounce back. <laughs> and, and it's the way you interpret those numbers is the tricky part. Yeah. You know, If you're a wetland ecologist, you're counting the number of fly larvae in a patch of river. Everything is just counting numbers, which hopefully most people can do yeah and certainly looking at it from that point of view makes it certainly makes it accessible um but the other thing that i that i i mean really love with the work that you that you've introduced the students to is that while they're out in their gardens putting their little trays of seeds down is that they're in a patch of the playground that maybe they weren't allowed to go to before <laughs> but uh they certainly haven't been to before and look closely at before they've mm. run through it maybe before but then you know when they're down there they're, they're noticing all sorts of other worlds mm. happening and and that you know op- that's opening their minds and and hearts hopefully as well but uh, to the fact that the that we share the planet with other living things yeah and it has been great seeing the students insight into the experiment when you say all right go out into the playground put these dishes out and you think that's very, very straightforward. <laughs> and then students come up and go, can I put them on the windowsill? <laughs> or <laughs> there's lots of ants in the bin. Can I put it in the bin? Is that, is that a good idea? And <laughs> just getting that, you know, tangential view on, on how to conduct an experiment. It's quite valuable. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I go through that every day. Each day I think I've done a great job of teaching. That's just that the kids haven't done a great job of learning. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there's lots of uh, we we have a message that we try to get out, of course, as as teachers and as scientists, I guess, as well. And yeah, it's open to interpretation, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget the day I was out doing a school's outreach activity. It was on ants, obviously, and a kid put their hand up and asked this very serious question: How do ants walk? And I just I just stared at them in silence. <laughs> I've I've I have no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> actually don't know what you mean by the question, but it's a very simple question. And I, I started talking about, well, you know, I guess how we stand up on our two legs. They've got six legs and they walk around on their six legs and they just went, yeah, yeah, but how? Wow. <laughs> and it's one of those things where having the input of students into these projects yeah, yeah. is actually really valuable yeah. because there's perspectives <laughs> right. coming into it that we wouldn't otherwise get. Yeah, that's for sure. And then after talking to this kid for a while, I realized what they're getting at was something they wanted to know about their muscles and their exoskeleton. And we talked for ages about how their bodies work kind of the opposite way to us, where the muscles are attached to the insides of their skeletons as opposed to the outside like us. And it yep. became a really great learning experience that way. Yeah, I had a similar question when we were out doing Tiny Gardeners from from a, a student, and, and I didn't know the answer to that either mm. about uh, ants' muscles. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, an inter- it's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, the Tiny Gardeners Project website is finally up and running with some resources and contact details on it, and it will keep growing. Excellent. As we get more schools cool. involved and as we get more resources up there and you're helping to develop 
the educational materials and you're actually developing units around yeah. it. So it's not just doing the experiment itself. Yeah, that's right. So wh- as I said before, the, the Tony Gardner, Gardner's project uh, ticks so many boxes in in the curriculum. Uh, so we've looked at it from a stage threes, which is year five and six um, science activity and looking at adaptations and uh, we together there's four or five of us have got together and and written a it's probably a eight lesson unit and one and one of those lessons is or more than one of those lessons is uh really really linked in with the tiny gardeners project but there's a little bit of before and there's a little bit of after and um and it just means that you can pick up the Tony Gardeners project and instead of doing it just in isolation, which would also work, but you can also just do the uh, the the science and technology unit and tick off all those outcomes that you were going to tick off in a different way. So um, that's what we're doing, and and we'll work eventually on a, a on a secondary school one as well in obviously in science as well, in biology, uh, but exactly where that will fit, we're still working mm. that out. So, And there's everything on there, really, from learning about uh, numeracy and data manipulation and graphing to animal behaviour and animal biology and plant biology and ecology, and there'll be information on all of that stuff. Yeah, that's right. That and, can and be brought into the classroom. And one of, one, of the ca- one of the teachers that's been involved with this project is, real, uh, is, a, is an art tutor in her spare time and so I, I've asked her to put a few lessons together on ants and uh, ant trails and as, as art activities. So mm. she's, she's put a, a suite of four activities together which we will post up on the website too and uh, one of the other teachers has a real bent for, for English so there's some literacy type activities as well going up. So yeah, it'll be a one-stop shop for, for ants activities yeah. in the primary school at the moment i'm really looking forward to seeing it <laughs> and i have to thank you for giving me one of the proudest moments of my life whenever you sent me a photo of a school kid that did an assignment on dr james o'hanlon and made a little poster with glued out pictures stuck onto the poster about dr james o'hanlon making <laughs> me go and had a little cry it was beautiful <laughs> yeah that's pretty special <laughs> I thought that might be special for you. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> it should be. Yeah, that's great. And and that's but that's what it's like. I mean, I think that you know, in terms of everybody wants a hero, and uh, and too often, perhaps in my opinion, uh, those heroes come from the silver screen and all the sporting field. But why, you know, why shouldn't we have heroes in the science field as well? So, well, I didn't call myself a hero, but I will. I will take the compliment. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and I guess if teachers want to get involved in the Tiny Gardeners Project. The website is up, tinygardenersproject.com. Yep. And the, on there will be an email address to get in contact. It's probably the best thing at this stage is just to send us an email and say, I want to be involved in the Tiny Gardeners Project. We want to run this experiment and we can send you out all the materials uh, to do that. Yep. But if people want to learn more about environmental education centres and uh, yeah, how so their schools can get out to them and be involved. Well, local schools in the New England are probably the ones that we would be looking at. So that's so that our, we have a Thalgara 
website as well and I won't try to remember that because it's a, a normal Department <laughs> of Education one and it's a bit tricky. Can you at it's least spell Thalgara for people? Sure. So Thalgara is T-H-A-L-G-A-R-R-A-H. Uh, so if you put that in, then you'll find us probably. Uh, there is a property next door called Thalgara as well, but they probably don't have such a great website. They don't have a website for a <laughs> patch of grass? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and of course, there's that where the network is sprinkled from the south coast to the north coast, and with a probably a, a you know following the population, I suppose. So there's lots in the Sydney basin as well. So yeah, so just Google New South Wales Environmental Education Centre. So yeah, they'll yeah, come up. That's right. And Thalgara also has a Facebook page. Yeah, we've can got a Facebook page. We're quite busy on Facebook, putting pictures and posts up of things that we're doing, or just sharing ideas and ethoses that we support and like uh and as we create new video material we we've um we've decided that we'll have a youtube channel so i think we've got about 10 videos on our youtube channel at the moment as well all right and hopefully there'll be a lot more videos of ants running around carrying seeds That's coming it. Up. <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks so much for coming on the podcast matt been a pleasure thanks for having me no worries thank you guys for listening check our site online at insituscience.com and we're on social media at insituscience check out our patreon page as well if you want to support uh, the podcast and our videos and everything else we do thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time